last week of this series called Attitude Adjustment. Next week, I'm going to start talking to you very specifically about why Jesus came, why Jesus died, and why you should make, make a commitment to him. This week, we're closing out this concept of attitude adjustment. Now, it, it, I, I really just want you to walk out of this series with two things more than anything else. If I can get you to buy into these two things, I think I'll have been successful in what I was trying to achieve. The first is this. Your actions are important to God. The church over the decades has done a great job talking about sin, right? Which is essentially means missing the mark that God has set for us. That sin has to do with your actions, and it does. But sin also has to do with your attitudes. Last week we looked at the Old Testament book of Numbers and how the Israelites had become grumblers in the wilderness and God had, because of their attitude, kept all but two of them from ever getting to the promised land because you can die in the desert and never get to the promised land based on your attitude. Second thing I want you to be aware of, I hope you'll consider it, I want you to think about putting at least as much effort into changing your attitude as you do your circumstances. So much of life we spend trying to get our circumstances just right, but the reality is we can't control them, and they have a tendency to change on us violently and dramatically, but we can change our attitudes and it's our attitudes that can help us overcome and prevail through our circumstances. The great Swindoll quote, I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. Attitude matters, as the old saying goes, attitude determines your altitude. That's true. Now we've looked at these attitudes that needs changing. All of them, Tim actually said it during worship, are undergirded by an issue we have with pride. We've looked at these things. Entitlement. Cynicism, judgmentalism. Today I want to look at the last one, and it's, it's, it's one we don't like to talk about a lot. Uh, it's one all of us struggle with to one degree or another, and it's actually maybe the one that's warned against the most in all of Scripture, although not once is it called by the name we've come to know it as. It is the complete anti-Jesus attitude. Now let's start with our anchor teaching from Paul, where we've kind of camped in this series. Remember Paul, as he's writing, he's writing a letter to a church in a town called Philippi, and he's chained to a Roman jailer, likely thinking this is it for him. He's writing to a church uh, in this city of Philippi. Scholars have come to call this letter that has become known as a book in your New Testament called Philippians. They now refer to it as the book of joy. How do you write a book called the book of joy chained to what is likely to be your executioner? You do it because you have a different attitude. Here's what Paul said. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the humiliation of a criminal's death on a cross. I think Paul, what Paul would say is that, now I'm going to give you a fancy religious word here, that your sanctification, I don't know if you've ever heard of the word sanctification, it's a pretty big deal in our faith. Sanctification means I am being set apart from something to something. Your sanctification, right, 
into being holy, being set apart from, some, from sin, sanctified to Christ, it doesn't happen by your best efforts. I think what Paul would say is if you, as we are becoming holy like Jesus, the process actually starts not from trying to be good, but it starts in our hearts and our minds and with an attitude change. Now, by way of introducing today's attitude, I want you to put on your old high school Greek mythology hat. I don't know if you're familiar, of this, are familiar with this star, story. It's about a, a Greek uh, mythological figure named Narcissus. Narcissus is not just a flower. I think I'm pronouncing that right. You may be familiar with the flower, but he was also a hunter in Greek mythology. And when he was born, his mother was warned he would live a long life provided he never recognized himself, which is actually, you could preach a sermon on that one. Now, Narcissus was very handsome. And, he, and, and lots of, of ladies fell in love with him. He actually reminds me of a young John Eisman in that way, but that's for another. <laughs> just kidding. See, this sermon is going to apply to me. You can you just see it already. Anyway, he was a very handsome young man. Many fell in love with him. However, anybody that did fall in love with him, he only showed disdain and contempt for. But one day, he's out hunting in the woods, and a nymph named Echo spotted him and fell in love with Narcissus. And when Narcissus sensed that somebody was following him, Echo revealed herself and said, look, you know, revealed her feelings and tried to hug him. But he pushed her off and told her, don't disturb me. Echo, in her despair, roamed around the woods for the rest of her life and waited until uh, all, until all it, that remained of her was an echo sound. Nemesis, the goddess of retribution and revenge, learned what had happened to Echo and decided to punish Narcissus for his behavior. So she led Narcissus to a pool, and the man saw his reflection in the water and fell in love with it. Which also reminds me of a young John Eyes, but that's another story too. Although he did not realize in the beginning that this was just a reflection, when he understood it, he fell into a despair that his love could not materialize, and he took his own life. Crazy story. But does anybody know what attitude we get from this story? Narcissism. And while we don't believe in Greek gods, we do believe that the scripture confirms over and over, century after century, for all of us, to one degree or another, we have an issue with this attitude. Call it what you want, self-centeredness, self-aggrandizement, self-focus, self-promotion. Now, before I go any further, I want to make sure you understand what I'm talking about here. I am not talking about what is vitally important to our lives, a healthy sense of self-worth. We all, as children of God, this is what we should get from him, our value, our self-esteem. We allow God, through Christ, to inform us of our worth. The cross, what Jesus did for us, his willingness to come in humility, serve us, save us, that shows you your worth. There's a distinction between self-esteem, self-worth, and narcissism. See, self-esteem represents an attitude built on who we are in Christ, what he's made us, given us, provided for us. Narcissism's different. Narcissism, and here's why, you know, I read this and go, narcissism is often based on a fear of failure 
or weakness, a focus on oneself, an unhealthy drive to be seen as the best, a deep-seated insecurity, an underlying feeling of inadequacy. See, when that happens, we'll do a lot of things to, to, to fill that up. See, our narcissistic tendencies, we, we get no rest out of our value in Christ because it's, it's seated in, in, deep, in, in deep fear and insecurity. Narcissism, think about it, narcissism encourages envy. It, 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 it fuels rivalry. A healthy sense of self-worth supports compassion and cooperation. Narcissism favors dominance. Self-esteem acknowledges equality. Narcissism involves arrogance. Christ-bought self-worth reflects Christ humility. Narcissism means it's necessary to pull down others so that you could stand above them. A Christ-like sense of self-worth leads to perceiving every human being as a person of value and meaning. Now, remember our anchor verse that we talked about? Let your attitude be that of Christ Jesus. Here's what comes right before that verse. Paul writes, listen, don't do anything from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, which is natural, but for the interests of others. Paul says, look, if you want to have the attitude that was present in Christ Jesus, you have to change what comes naturally to each and every person ever born, narcissistic attitudes. When you were three months old, you did not lie in your crib and think to yourself, hmm, you know, I know it's not all about me, but I'm really hungry, I think I'll cry. It was all about you, right? I've got four kids. Sometimes this takes decades to overcome this concept, right? <laughs> Sometimes they get it from their father who's still wrestling with it, right? So this is something that is innate in us, but usually healthy individuals outgrow, but none of us fully outgrow it. A lot of us just learn to cover it up. Now, I am not talking about the psychological disorder here called narcissistic personality disorder. That's a serious thing. Only 1% or, or less of the general population falls into that category. But what I am talking about is the tendency that each of us has to filter everything through the lens of me, 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 me. How does this affect me? Have I been um, uh, impacted? Has anybody disrespected me? How has this made me look? How has this made me feel? Now, can I share something that's kind of embarrassing with you? I might be hypervigilant about this because... As I read this week, this is a true story. In 2015, there was a scientific study done, and it revealed, quote, the, this is the headline of the study. Pastors have a 500 to 3,000% higher incidence of narcissistic personality disorder as compared to the general population. So if you think you think about you a lot, imagine how often I'm thinking about me. And this has just gone crazy in the culture we live in, right? It's everywhere, but maybe it's, it's demonstrated nowhere else but better than in the celebrity culture that so many of us worship. There's entire websites dedicated to the narcissism of those in the limelight. Let me give you a couple of my famous, favorite quotes I came across this week. Everybody remember David Lee Roth, right? Quote, I'm not conceited. Conceit is a fault, and I have no faults. 
This one kind of sums it up, Kanye West, I am the nucleus. Oscar Wilde, I have nothing to declare except my own genius. Madonna, I like this one. Listen, everyone is entitled to my opinion. The Beebs, how about this one? Not trying to be arrogant, but if I walked down the street and a girl saw me, she might take a look back because maybe I'm good looking, right? And you know, Kanye really is, when it comes to narcissistic quotes, he really is the gift that never stops giving Kanye. There's actually entire websites develop, you know, devoted to his, his quotes. I like this one. I am a vessel, and God has chosen me to be the voice and the connector. So it is no wonder, especially amongst the younger generation, that we have now what has become known as a narcissism epidemic. In fact, academics Gene Twang and Keith Campbell found, this is really wild, narcissistic personality traits rose, have risen, just as fast as obesity from the 1980s to the present. We are feeding on this stuff. Now, if you know me, I am not a huge fan of the, the Christian bubble. They're not a huge fan of, not a big fan of Christian TV and the televangelists. And, and, and you know, kind of a go-to weapon in, 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 in the tool belt of, of the televangelist. You know, the guy trying to get you to write a check for holy water or to, to, be, to buy food for your survival bunker. You know that guy? He, he, often, he often uses as his tool a threat uh, of the return of Jesus. You know, it's the last days, so get this holy water. It's the last days, so love your neighbor by shooting at them when they come to get some food at your house, that kind of thing. Now, I've lived long enough to have seen a few of these guys miss their prediction about Jesus' return. The best part is some of them have missed their dates several times, and they still have an audience, which blows my mind. I prefer myself to go with what Jesus said about his return, which was that it would be like a thief coming in the night, imminent, but that only the Father knew the time and the hour. So if Jesus did not know, I, your lowly pastor, am likely not to know it either. But I will share with you something that's really quite fascinating about, about a warning about the last days from Paul's letter to his son in the faith, Timothy. He wrote this, he said, Timothy, mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. How come no one talks about this as a warning sign of the coming of Christ? Have you ever heard of somebody say, I think Jesus might be coming because everybody is loving themselves at newfound levels? Never. In the last days, humility is going to go by the wayside. Self-focus, self-aggrandizement, self-promotion, self-praise, self-absorption is going to go from something that people used to try to avoid or at least cover up and restrain to being something celebrated and championed. Paul goes on, he says, in these last days, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love. Unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. He's saying in the last days, Timothy, people will become lovers of themselves and pleasure, but not others or God. And then, then this is really kind of convicting for us church folk because he goes, he goes they're going to have a form of godliness. You might find this in the church. You might find this with the pastors. 
having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And he says, listen, don't have anything to do with those people. Having a form of godliness. In other words, they might be seen praising God. They might be seen using God as something to build their own empire on, their own self-aggrandizement. But they deny the power of God. And, and, and they use themselves maybe as a means to, the, to an end rather than Jesus. Now, I don't want to sound like some old, scary religious guy trying to threaten you with last day Armageddon messages. But here's what I do want to say. This attitude struggle that we all have to one degree or another, left unchecked, these little narcissistic tendencies, they are very, very dangerous to our souls and our world. It could be a small thing. Let me give you an example. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone, and as they're speaking, all of a sudden you realize you've lost track of what they're even saying because all you've been thinking about is what you're going to say back? They're talking, they're talking, all of a sudden you realize, crud, I haven't heard a word they said because I was thinking about what I was going to say back to you. See, this is a form of narcissism, right? What you're saying to me about me is not nearly as important as what I'm about to say to you. So I'm going to focus on that. This is especially true if it's a difficult conversation. That's no conversation. That's me figuring out how I'm going to look better than you. But it goes on, right? Uh, the guy that gets the promotion uh, that you were both in line for at work. I was thinking about this first service. I was preaching at first service, and I remembered I have a friend, um, John. John and I were both uh, in line for a job at another, um, another company back in my, my finance days. And John and I both went for the job. Now, I preached this in the first service, and I got reminded of it as I was talking. I'm like, oh, I'll tell that story. And then I literally heard my flesh say, don't tell that story because people are going to think badly of you. But John and I both went for the same job, and John got the job, and I didn't. Now, what I, my flesh says is I need to tell you that John had an MBA, and I didn't. So that's probably why John got the job, right? That's probably why, because I don't want you to think badly about me. But when John got the job, and I didn't get the job, I was bummed that I didn't get the job. I wasn't happy that John got the job. But you know what I was most concerned about? How it made me look when I had to go back and say he got the job and I didn't. Look, you'll start, if you, this is, look, when we really start to deal with our attitudes, and this narcissistic one is the toughest one, it's the deepest one, when we really start to deal with our attitudes, it starts to get ugly for us quick. For example, those of you that have had kids do something wrong, right? They, they did something wrong, they screwed up at some level, right? Maybe a couple folks in town found out about it. If you're honest and you get a sense for what's going on in your soul, what's bothering you more than that your kid did something wrong, maybe they're going to need to be corrected. The reality is, for most of us parents, when they do something wrong and people in town find out, most of the time there's something inside going, boy, this is going to make me look like a really bad parent. Right? I mean, it, you know, it, today's Memorial Day, Right? Let me show you something about pastors. Today's Memorial Day, and uh, so our minds and our thoughts are supposed to be on those that have paid the ultimate price so that we could gather in freedom to worship God. Do you know what thought process every pastor has on his way to church on Memorial Day Sunday morning? There's not going to be a lot of people here today, and how's that going to make me look? Right? This is in all of us. And when it works its way out in our marriages, with our kids, in our jobs, with our friends, and with our God, 
it's very, very dangerous. Now, how about this? You take a little mix of narcissism and you add to it a form of godliness, you get something that the Bible talks about a lot. It's called self-righteousness. Jesus tells a story about what happens when you mix these two together. He says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. See, what are they? They are lovers of themselves and they're having a form of godliness. Jesus told this parable. He said, look, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I have. Now, we read this, right? And we always go, oh, that pompous, you know what? However, let's take a hard look at this, okay? He looks religious. He does religious stuff. He has a form of godliness, no doubt. In fact, let's go beyond that and let's be really honest. Relative to most of us, he is doing better. He gives a lot more money than most of us to the church. He prays a lot more than most of us in the church. And he fasts a lot more than most of us in the church. But what the scripture is saying is it's all meaningless. There's no power in it. It's a form of godliness that's just being driven out of self-aggrandizement and narcissistic tendencies. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Remember, guys, tax collectors were the worst of the worst. This isn't like the IRS and an audit. These were guys that were traitors to their country. These were people that were stealing and robbing from an entire culture. They were stealing the legacies of families. They were selling their own, their own, their own people out. Yet, here's what Jesus says about the tax collector. I'll tell you that that man, rather than the other, went home justified before God for all of those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this is literally one of countless stories in the scripture related to this narcissistic attitude. From Adam blaming Eve with the first sin, well, it's that woman you gave me. All the way to the disciples at the Last Supper. Some of you know the story. Jesus is sitting there. He goes, well, let me explain. This is my body, which is going to be broken for you. This has to do with what's going to happen in a couple of hours. I'm going to be beaten, mocked. And here's my blood, which is going to be shed for you. It's going to be poured out all over the ground so that you have new access to God. And do you know what the disciples are doing at the Last Supper, anybody? Arguing over who's greater. It's so deep in us. See, there's this story of... of of Jesus uh, and the Pharisee, it's ironic because it starts with the Pharisee, quote, who was looking down on everybody else. It is in violation of the law of love to look down on anyone else. And Jesus said that that is the absolute essence of righteousness. That attitude that I've been labeling narcissism, you can call it whatever you want, the, the me attitude, it's all about me, it is sin. It drives sin. It fuels sin. And sin within us is like a cancer. And it keeps mutating. 
So we've been working on our attitudes, right? And maybe you took, maybe a couple weeks ago we talked about cynicism, we talked about that cynicism jar, right? And so a lot of you have been telling me, I've been putting money in that cynicism jar like crazy. And so you start to say to yourself, you know what, I'm getting a handle on cynicism now. And then you talk to your friend, and he says something, narciss- uh, he says something cynical. What's the first thing you do? Judge him. So the minute you squash one attitude, it's like another one springs up. It's like a whack-a-mole of attitudes, right? You work on one, as soon as you knock it down, there's something else that pops up, and this is what sin, sin is not about saying a bad word or stealing a pen. I mean, it is, but it works its way out from the inside and from your attitude. It's the paradox of battling sin in our, our attitudes is it's impossible sometimes to know how you're doing. One writer described it this way. He said, look, people that are in great physical shape know it. Musicians who have honed their craft could tell you how. But when's the last time someone whose soul you deeply admired said, you know, I've really been on a great roll when it comes to overcoming sin lately. Have you been watching me? Because those of us who are doing the best at it don't seem to actually think they're doing particularly well. This is why Paul writes at a different point in the scriptures, you know, I've been looking at myself, who's going to save me from this wretched body of sin? I'm a mess. It's not just modesty. It's an awareness of this insidious danger that's inside us. But how, I mean, is it possible to change? Paul believed it was. What Paul said is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, a new way of living was available to ordinary human beings in a new kind of redemptive community. That hearts and minds and attitudes not only could change, but they should change. And when your attitudes change, you change. It can happen. Even if you've been here all these weeks and you're starting to go, huh, I got problems. It is possible to change your attitude, even if you're starting to sense it isn't. Imagine, if you will, an alcoholic going into an AA meeting and hearing somebody say, we're so glad you're here. We want you to know you're loved and forgiven through nothing that you've done. Of course, don't expect to change too much. Don't expect to actually stop drinking. We don't like it when people suggest sobriety is possible. We believe that trying not to drink breeds arrogance and self-sufficiency. We have a little bumper sticker. Twelve steppers are not sober, just forgiven. The whole point of AA was to bring freedom from a spiritual power that was destroying lives, and that is the same power that's available to you through the Holy Spirit of God to change your attitude. It can change. It should change. Do you know what the number one sign of a change in your attitude would be? It's probably not what you think. When it comes to pride, entitlement, cynicism, judgmentalism, narcissism, what is the indicator of a changed attitude? Well, if the complete anti-God attitude is pride and looking down on others, here's the attitude, here's the change the Bible says. As the Holy Spirit is working on you, here's how you'll know your attitude is changing. Peter said it. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another. Deeply from the heart. Love one another. Paul writes, he, he, he writes about, remember he wrote, and he told Timothy, he said, Timothy, be careful. in the end days, people are going to be lovers of themselves. He's writing to another church and he says, Timothy has just now come to us from you and he's brought good news about your faith and love. 
To hear, and, and, and so I know, you, I know you're believers. But then he says, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. Then he writes again, we ought to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more and the love you have for one another is increasing. This is not, this, you know, you're, you'll know your attitudes are actually changing when you start to love people. Even people you can't fathom loving. Raise your hand if there's somebody right now in your life, I want you to think of somebody that you can't fathom loving. Right? Do you have anybody? Raise your hand when you get somebody in your mind that you can't fathom loving. Some of your hands went up way too quick. Um, You will know your attitude is changing, your heart is changing when the Holy Spirit begins to do something something to you, and it's not like, well, I guess i got to love them. Something happens and you start to go, you know what? I'm actually starting to love people I don't even like. I read read a story this week of someone coming to grips with how deep these attitude issues are in our core. He wrote... I get ang- this is actually a pretty famous pastor that wrote this. He said, I get angry at people because they don't do what I want. I avoid confrontation I know is needed because I want to avoid pain. I'm apathetic towards injustice. I lust. I use other people. I manipulate. I get defensive. I'm ungrateful for blessings. I withdraw. This is great. He said, the other night, my wife asked me if I had someone's number on my cell phone. I immediately said no. The truth was, I was pretty sure it was on my phone, but I didn't want to take the 10 seconds needed to look. I didn't want to tell her that, so I said no. And then I felt bad. So I had to stop. Remember we talked, take every thought captive. I had to stop. I looked my wife in the eye, and I told her that I had just lied to her, and that the reason for my lie was I didn't want to give up the 10 seconds. It was humiliating, it was embarrassing, and he wrote, it is so small that even in the telling, it makes me look more sensitive to my sin and my attitudes than I really actually am. Sometimes our attitudes, our sin in them is so close to us, it's like our skin, we don't know it's there. And so what matters the most is not so much that you're trying to reduce the sin factor, It's that you come to love the life that God has created apart from these broken attitudes, the shalom life, the peace life that God cherishes, and hate the sin that corrupts it, not because I'm so righteous, but because that life could be so good. Now, I'm going to give you one practical way to fix your attitude and and one deeply profound one. The practical one Paul gave when he talked about what people are going to be like at the end, right? He said they're going to be lovers of themselves, lovers of their money, boastful, proud, arrogant. Remember what he said, what you should do at the end of that? He said, don't, don't hang around with those people. I have a saying in our house, my kids hate it. To this day, they hate it. Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Now, this doesn't mean you don't love people. It doesn't mean that you don't go to people. But it does mean you have to watch who you surround yourself with. And when we, in a celebrity-driven culture, just keep putting before our eyes and our minds this concept of constant self-aggrandizement, it is messing with your core. So if you want nothing more, if you just want to practice, 
limit, watch your friendships, your relationships, and what you put before your eyes. When people live with this constant egocentric attitude, you've got to stay a little bit further away from it. Can I give you a bigger one, a better one, and one that will actually have deep-rooted, transformative power in your life? It's this. I read the story this week of another pretty famous pastor. This is one I really admire. And he went to his congregation because he wanted them to understand the power of the Holy Spirit to change them. Not through their efforts, but the power of the Holy Spirit to change them. And after one of his sermons, here's what he did. He challenged members of the congregation to raise their hands if they were willing to surrender their possessions and their lifestyles fully to God and actually decide to use their resources to serve the poor and honor God. He said, everybody that's willing to do that, give everything you up, have over to God, raise your hand. It would be like me right now saying, listen, if after this series you've come to a place where you say, you know what, I think I might be judgmental, I think I might be a narcissist, I think I, 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 think I might be a cynic, if you're willing to say, I've got some of that brokenness and you want work on it, I, you know, this would be me, and I'm not going to call you out on it, but this would be me saying, raise your hand right now. And then he said, for everybody that didn't raise their hand, he said, I want to have a word with all of you who didn't raise your hand. And this is what he said. I love this. You'd have to be a pretty big wig to, to not get in trouble by saying this, but here's what he said. For all of you that didn't raise your hand, he said, I hope you have a terrible afternoon. He said, I hope you have a terrible evening. I hope the Holy Spirit keeps on after you and you have to keep thinking this one through until you're able to raise your hand as well. And so, Mendham, that's my prayer for you and your attitude. I hope you have a terrible Memorial Day week. <laughs> Not a... But my prayer is that, that maybe you've come to the place through this series where you realize you have an attitude that needs adjusting. And the truth is, it's not just an attitude problem. It's a sin problem. It's a brokenness problem. We're all wrestling with it. It's a problem at our core. Maybe you're tired of, of, of trying to feel like you've, maybe you feel like you've done everything. And they're so deep. It's funny. You might know, not know this. One of the reasons God gave the Ten Commandments, this is so unknown by Christians, we should really know this. I mean, God gave the Ten Commandments essentially for two reasons. The first was to show how holy God was. But the second, the reason God gave the Ten Commandments was to show you you can't live up to them. Which always cracks me up because as Christians, we're always trying to get them put up in front of courthouses. And I'm always going, this is what's condemning you. But, right? but we're always trying to get them put in front of courthouses. And I'm going, you're, not, you're missing the point. The Ten Commandments were given to show you that you can't achieve them. You have to run towards God. My prayer is that as we've discussed these attitudes, and maybe you've started to become overwhelmed and going, I think I have every single one of these. Maybe you start to go, be overwhelmed and you start to go, I think I need to run towards God. Because just like you can't save yourself, you can't sanctify yourself either. It's a work of God in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. But if you will create some space in your life and you will seek Him and you will let Him speak into you and you'll let Him work on that hole that you keep trying to cover up with all of these attitude things, I'm telling you you can change. Create some space for God. My hope is that this series has served that purpose from you. I'm going to ask the band, I want you to come up. My prayer for you, Mendham, is that the Holy Spirit keeps after you. 
And you have to keep thinking this one through. That he keeps pointing out to you deep-seated attitudes that need changing, healing. And that you come to a place like Paul did and you cry out, oh my gosh, who is going to save me from this wretched body of sin and these horrible attitudes that send me down all kinds of wrong paths? My prayer is that you would get to a place where you cry out, God, I can't change my attitudes. But you can. Change me, God. Love me, God. Help me to start loving others as I start to discover what it's like to actually not have a form of godliness, but actually love you. In the great name of Jesus, may that truth take deep root in your soul.